Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp Podcast. Shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 5, You Know Something Jon Snow. When I started planning out the episodes for this podcast, I was kind of hoping to have a vague sense of chronology about it. I'd start by covering earlier era events and move forward from there, but naturally the best laid plans of mice and men always go awry and I really didn't allow for the fact that some topics would actually cover and extend over a large part of the century. This would be one of them. History podcast lesson one, I guess. Also, I really do think that this topic is far bigger than one podcast, so in the future at some point you can definitely expect more podcasts on this particular topic. Because this episode, we're going to look at some of the medical practices and ideas of the 19th century. I figured since last time I covered some of the darker periods in mental health, this time I'd have a look at the physical medical care of the 19th century. After all, in the year 1800, the life expectancy of a middle-class male was 45. Yes, you heard that correctly, 45. That's about all you had. And for workmen and labourers, it was even less. Children were lucky to survive to the age of five. Cholera, tuberculosis, smallpox, parasites, rheumatic fever, scarlet fever, all floating around in the community ready to take your life, aside from any other risks that you might face in your daily working life. So what did doctors think and do to aid in returning you to health? Well, medical science at this time believed that the body was influenced by what was called humours. Spelt the same way as the comedy humour, but completely different. These were chemical systems that were thought to regulate human behaviour And if they were out of balance, your health and behaviour would be too. There were four of those, and in no particular order, they were as follows. One was blood, which was believed to be produced in the liver. It was responsible for your sanguine nature. That is, how active or social you were. Another was black bile. This had a direct effect on depression levels. If your liver was contaminating your blood with black bile, it was likely then that you may experience depression. As a bit of trivia, the Greek term melena kola, which means black bile, is where we get the word melancholy from. Yellow bile, on the other hand, was thought to produce aggression and anger. Bile like this in your blood meant that you were more likely to commit criminal activity. And it's the reason we use the term bad blood when we criticise someone for their criminal or antisocial behaviour. And the fourth was phlegm. Causing apathetic behaviour, this is not phlegm as we know it today, but rather thought to be a pituitary secretion. And more trivia, that's where the word phlegmatic comes from. If these four humours, as they were called, were in balance, then you can guess that you were a healthy individual. Otherwise, your medical practitioner would be aiming to re-establish a balance of these to bring you back to health. 
The idea had been around for literally millennia and the medical professionals had no reason to change their belief that this was still the way your body worked. Another aspect of health during this time was a concern with miasmas, or bad air. Certainly these days we understand that some illnesses can be caused by what is in the air, but at the beginning of the 19th century, the logic was that in poor districts, where the air was foul, the death rates were high, therefore it is the smells causing the problem and causing the deaths. In more affluent neighbourhoods, the air was clean, there were no smells, and the people living in these areas had less illness and disease. Therefore, it was deduced that the lack of smells was the reason why you were remaining healthy. That the poorer areas with less access to decent food, decent living conditions, happened to be in areas that also had the tanneries, the fishing, the butchery businesses and the docks wasn't really a factor in making these judgments. It's logical in defining why you might get sick, even if it was completely wrong. Now, this is not an idea that was only around at the beginning of the 19th century. In 1858, an unseasonably hot summer combined with undiluted sewage in the Thames brought about what became known as the Great Stink. The English Parliament were genuinely worried that the smell itself might kill members of Parliament in their debating chamber that overlooked the river. One proponent of the miasma theory was the legendary nurse Florence Nightingale, and like I was just talking about, the presumption was kind of right, just with the wrong reasoning, because her reputation was cemented during the Crimean War when she insisted on removing bad smells from the hospitals by thorough cleaning. That the cleaning removed the disease and germs from where the patients were recovering wasn't really the point, more that the cleaning removed the bad smells. Aside from knowing that bad smells caused ill health, your physical health was also critically influenced by the common workplace practices of the day. Unlike the modern era, employers had no legal duty to ensure a safe workplace for their staff. Aside from using dangerous machinery, there was regular use of poisons at work and at home. Green dye that was used in floral wallpaper and in decorations on hats had used arsenic as part of the process in the colouring. Arsenic was also used in the home for all sorts of purposes, from removing hair to killing rats and even just killing flies. If you wanted to kill someone in your home, well, at least you had a ready supply of extremely deadly poison right there on hand. And it also meant that you yourself were subject to living in an environment where you came in regular contact with such deadly substances. Childbirth too was extremely risky and painful given the widespread belief that labour pains were imposed by God because Eve had sinned in the Garden of Eden, little was done to look to find some way to alleviate them. I really don't think that saying to more than half the population, put up and shut up, is all that constructive though, do you? Hmm. So, if you did become ill, what could you do? Well, there were no end to the advertisements that could be found in the press that were related to remedies, cures and preventatives. Kay's Wurzdell's pills were the best medicine that can be taken under all circumstances as they require no restraint of diet or confinement during their use and their timely assistance cures all complaints. 
and they even came in a family-sized box. How could you argue with that? James Morrison's universal pill was a medicine that was made from a compound of aloes and cream of tartar, and it was clearly a popular choice during this era, because when he died, Morrison was worth over half a million pounds. Back then, not today. A lot of money. Uh, these medicines were largely used by the poor. The middle and upper classes could afford to have doctors attend them at home. Now, I mentioned before about the body having humours, and the 19th century understanding of science in this matter believed that a body could actually have too much blood in it. And at these times, a rebalancing was needed. So, healthcare professionals, and I'm using that term loosely, would use leeches to bleed a patient and suck the blood from the body. And another popular method was the use of plasters. These would be used to draw out the illness or bad humours from a body. A thin cut of leather combined with a blend of wax and ingredients like lead, opium or frankincense would be spread and let to cool. These were then sold to be placed on at specific points of your body and to draw out the excessive humours. Some of these needed to be left on the body for two or three days, but while that might be awkward to leave on, it was still a very popular form of cure in this era for removing those ill humours. And then, of course, there was the everlasting pill. This sort of thing you really can't make, make up, to be honest. Now, from what I've spoken of already, you're probably getting the understanding that the idea was to purge the body of the humour imbalances and restore your health. The everlasting pill did this. This small pill was made of the metal antimony. When swallowed, the fact that antimony was toxic to the human body resulted in you experiencing severe vomiting and diarrhea. This was seen as being a healthy cleanse. Yes, Heath, but what makes it everlasting, I hear you ask? Well, I am glad you asked, because <laughs> although you may not be, I'm also pretty sure some of you bright gas lampers out there have worked this one out. Because once you swallowed the everlasting pill, enjoyed the experience of vomiting and constantly sitting on the toilet, you would then sift through said toilet and retrieve the pill. Give it a wash, and then it's back on the shelf, ready for the next time that someone needs to have their humours purged. It's the pill the whole family could use. Sells itself, really, doesn't it? Okay, <laughs> maybe not. But as this century progressed, fortunately, so did the medical knowledge of those in the profession. In 1854, there was an outbreak of cholera in London. This bacterial infection only affects humans, and even in modern times, it still kills anywhere up to 130,000 people a year, usually in less developed nations where the unsanitary water conditions carry the bacteria. Fortunately for London, this time they had Jon Snow. No, this is not the Game of Thrones Jon Snow. Yes, I couldn't help myself with the title of the episode, so forgive me there. But Snow is considered one of the fathers of the science known as epidemiology. Epidemiology is concerned with studying the who, the when, and the where distribution of the causes of health and disease conditions. During the 1854 cholera outbreak, 
Jon Snow was investigating the area of London where the majority of cases came from. After interviewing locals, studying the conditions, he determined that there was one specific water source that may have been causing the issue. Need to bear in mind here too, the idea of germs was still not an accepted theory in 1854. The concept had been put forward, but there were still questions as to the validity of it and how much it really affected you being ill. But from all the evidence he gathered, he knew that it had to be that water source that was causing the illness. So he then had the water supply in that area stopped and the outbreak ceased. A major breakthrough for understanding what was happening with disease in the city, it led to the government establishing separate water systems for sewage and drinking water. Yes, you heard me correctly, separate systems because up until now, they were often mixed. And the bacteria in human waste was what caused cholera in the first place. Another huge change in medicine occurred in the late 1840s. Doctors now had access to the latest invention, anaesthetic. Up until the 1840s, surgery meant being awake or just drunk. Think of all the procedures and surgeries we have these days and imagine having those while you're awake. Surgeries in those days were often performed in amphitheaters where you could buy a ticket and go along and watch. You could even bring a date if you like. It's quite the evening, I'm sure. But hospitals in those days were largely only used by the poor anyway. If you were rich, you could afford to have the doctor coming to your home and hospitals would only accept you if they thought they could cure you. If you had tuberculosis, for example, you'd be refused entry. Can't collect money from a dead person. But amputations were always accepted because selling tickets was another source of income for the hospital and messy, bloody limb severing. Wow, that was some IMAX theater quality viewing right there. And in the 1800s, the most famous surgeon in London was Dr. Robert Liston. Author Richard Gordon describes him as follows. He was six foot two and operated in a bottle green coat with Wellington boots. He sprung across the bloodstained boards upon his swooning, sweating, strapped-down patient like a duelist, calling, Time me, gentlemen, time me, to students craning with pocket watches from the iron-railinged galleries. Everyone swore that the first flash of his knife was followed so swiftly by the rasp of saw on bone that sight and sound seemed simultaneous. To free both hands, he would clasp that bloody knife between his teeth. It's recorded that he removed a limb on one patient in 28 seconds. In the 1820s, 12-year-old Henry Pace had to have his leg removed. He described it as hurting no more than having a tooth pulled. Although later in life, he said... 
he could never forget the feeling of those six strokes it took to cut his leg off. Dr. Robert Liston, medical rock star. Today we accept them for the gift they are, but in the 1800s, people were mistrustful of anaesthetics. It was only after the daughter of the Archbishop of Canterbury and Queen Victoria herself used them in the alleviation of their labour pains that the general public became more comfortable with their concept and use. The last two of Victoria's children, Leopold and Beatrice, were both delivered while the Queen was under the effects of chloroform. The use of these chemicals and the slow changing understanding that it was not just the air causing illness led to the progression into the 20th century of medical practices that we have come to know today. As I said when I started this episode, there is an incredible amount to cover in the medical area, so I will be revisiting it at some point in the future. And a lot of the stories in this episode are from a great book by Lindsay Fitzharris called The Butchering Art. I highly recommend getting a copy if this in any way interests you. It is a great read. And I also heard her interviewed on a BBC History Podcast. The practices and discoveries and people in this field all do have amazing stories. So I'm sure we'll be back here soon enough. But take a tip. Just don't go buying an everlasting pill on eBay. Okay. Oh, and one last little fact. Well, the doctor that advocated the use of anaesthetic and aided the Archbishop's daughter and the monarch Queen Victoria herself in their labours, well, you already know his name, Dr. John Snow. So here endeth the episode. My website is victoriangaslamp.com. You can email me at victoriangaslamp at gmail.com with any suggestions you might have for future episodes. Happy to look into whatever might interest you as well. You are the ones listening on Twitter at Vic Gaslamp and my Instagram account is Victorian Gaslamp. Post there probably a couple of times a week and I do it as a bit of a, an extra aside to the podcast itself. Speaking of which, the next episode will be out in two weeks. So keep a lookout for that and I'll see you next time under the gas lamp. <laughs>